Hi, welcome to the Vine Church podcast, where this week we are privileged to have Pastor Aaron Dives giving a great message. Enjoy. Good morning, one, two, testing. One, two, excellent. Good morning, everybody. A big, massive welcome to you. If you're with the dedication party, thank you for coming and being with us today. If you're visiting, uh, a massive welcome. Ruben, if you could put my timer on so I don't speak forever, please. I'm going to speak this morning on Transformers. Transformers. If you have YouVersion Bible app on your phone, you can go onto your YouVersion Bible app, you can click on events, your location tracking device should detect the Vine Church Dunfermline, or you can just type that up and you'll get the notes all on there. If you prefer the pencil and paper shunt, never fails, never crashes, then you just go ahead. Now, Transformers, here we go. I used to love Transformers as a kid. They were absolutely amazing. Uh, back, back then it was the old school animation. And um, I'm going to read this quote from a guy called George Ortberg. It says, the fact that you were made in the image of God, and as we're thinking about the beautiful dedication, I think it was God making Joni and making mankind in his image. It says, the fact that you were made in the image of God tells you not just about your worth, but also about your destiny. The main point of image of God language in scripture is not about some ability or trait we share with God, it's about the mission he has given us. Through our learning, our work, our culture, our relationships, technology, the arts, medicine, we are with humility to add goodness and beauty to families and societies and creation so that God's whole project becomes a glorious delight to all who see it. Now whose image is stamped on you? Whose image do you bear? Whose image is stamped on you like the coin? Give to Caesar that which is Caesar. Whose image is stamped on the coin? It was Caesar's. But whose image is stamped on you? Well, Genesis 1.26 says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. There's a double repetition of different Hebrew words here. In our likeness. Two Hebrew words. Um, we have got selem and demut. And they are translated as image and likeness. And both refer to something that is similar. That's unbelievable right there. We're being made to be similar to God. Not identical to the thing that it represents or is an image of, but similar in our image. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in our image, in our likeness. Um, So we can give a definition uh, to the image of God like this. The fact that man is in the image of God means that man and woman, children, is like God and represents God. This is really quite revolutionary, this belief, this worldview, this mindset, this understanding has huge implications and this truth and belief has shaped the modern society in which we live in. The fact that man has made an image of God has been referred to using the Latin phrase amago dei. That's not deism if you feel okay, that's your grandfather's son. It's dei is in the Latin for God. Made an image not of your grandfather, your dei, but amago dei, the, the Latin image for God, okay? Latin for image of God. Now the belief alone is incredible because it bestows on mankind, on you, honor, 
dignity, privilege and purpose on human beings. And so powerful has this worldview, understanding, belief been to the human race that is one of the foundational beliefs that has shaped much of our modern society today. For example, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. believed that every person was created by God and is worthy of dignity, love, basic human rights, and fair and just treatment. That belief is what compelled him, motivated him, stirred him, and he fought for equality and called out those who discriminated against races. This is what he said of the Imago Dei. You see, the Founding Fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him uniqueness. You have uniqueness. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a tribal white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. Not every people group in the world have this belief, this worldview, and this understanding. And the implications are huge because we lack empathy and compassion when we don't believe that every soul, a little kid on a rubbish dump searching for his dinner, if they're in a lower caste, they are seen as that's deserving and worthy because of, of how they've lived in their, their previous life, for example. So this idea this Christian idea of the image of God is hugely important and significant. It was to Martin Luther King. He goes on to say, we will one day know that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. This is why we must fight segregation with all our non-violent might. That was in a sermon in 1965 in Ebenezer Baptist Church. Now, I want you to compare that mindset, that understanding to that of atheism. And William Lane Craig says in a book on guard, after all, on the atheistic view, there's nothing special about human beings. They're just accidental byproducts of nature that have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust called the planet Earth, lost somewhere in a hostile and mindless universe in which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a short, relatively short time. Richard Dawkins' assessment of human worth may be depressing, but why, given atheism, given atheism, is he mistaken when he says there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for being. That's on guard by William Lane Craig. Now the problem we have here is that you can't just throw a massive worldview, a belief, an understanding. You can't just throw God and faith and a belief system and a foundational system out of our life, school, society, and nation without consequences. And what are the tragic consequences as we move towards atheism and secularism? 
Anxiety is at epidemic levels. Self-image, identity, and self-worth are thrown out with it. Human beings have been reduced from being special, significant, highly valued royal image bearers who are stamped with the image of a compassionate, loving, and powerful God. They've been reduced from that truth and reality to being an accidental byproduct of nature. An atheist wanted to speak to me and I went for a curry. And his main question was, am I an accident? My, I was, my dad died when I was young. I was told I was a mistake and I feel I have no purpose. And I, I basically gave him this message on the Imago Dei. And, he, and uh, he said, oh, that's what I was hoping was the, the answer. That is what I was, an atheist. And uh, we had a brilliant dinner, uh, a brilliant curry. Um, so which would you rather be? So we've got a stark contrast between atheism and Christianity. And according to atheism, there's nothing special about human beings. They're accidental byproducts of nature created by evolution. And as Dawkins says, mankind is a freak of nature, has no design, no purpose. We're machines for propagating DNA. And the implications of this worldview and belief are staggering because on the atheistic worldview, there is nothing special about me and there's nothing special about you. Christianity contrasts with that. It believes in the Imago Dei. It believes you are incredibly special, incredibly unique, designed, formed, and shaped in your mother's womb by the divine hand. Humans are special. They have dignity. They have purpose, special meaning, because they've been created by God to represent him on earth. And if we could really fully get our mind around that, we've been created to be like God, to be his representatives, because he's not on earth, but we are to be him, his representatives. That is quite incredible to try and get your mind around. But N.T. Wright, He's a professor of New Testament at the University of St. Andrews. He says, when humans are looking after creation and bringing God's healing, restorative justice to creation in all sorts of ways, they are reflecting God into this world. That's what Christians should be doing day in and day out. That's what we should be doing historically. And yet very often Christianity has this perception of being oppressive, dangerous, that we need to eradicate Christianity uh, from the world because it's so oppressive and holds back society, holds back development, holds back. But the truth is that we are called to be, bring God's representative, his healing, restorative justice. We are called to make the world a better place, if you want to put it simply. We're, we're, that's something that we should all have in common, regardless of your religion or no religion. We all surely want to make the world a better place, but actually, that is the Christian vocation. That is the Christian purpose. Christians, more than any people, should care and act to make a world a better place. That's why we should care about the environment, care about plastic, care about um, looking after the creation, care about environmental issues, because always created by God and what is given by God we should care and love for. And that's our purpose and design. So if we were to stop and think about our likeness to God, it will give you a strong sense of dignity and significance. Regardless of your employment or lack thereof, regardless of the external circumstances of your income, 
your job, your status, your popularity, your looks. These are not extrinsic, external factors that determine your value. It's been birthed inside of you. So that means your value doesn't go up and down with the economy, with the viruses. It's a, your value is something that cannot be changed. But you, you think about it, the creator of the universe, he wanted to create something in his image, something more like himself than all of creation. We are more like our creator than the starry universe, the abundant earth, the world of plants and animals, and even angels. That's how significant, special, and important human beings are. And the image of God and the understanding changes everything. It shapes how we view the world and one another, and it calls us, it places on us the requirement to honor the image of God in every single human being. God's image should compel God's children to love all people because all people are made in his image. And therefore, that's why Christianity should strive for justice, dignity, liberty, and human flourishing in societies and cities and homes and relationships, because everybody who bears the stamp of God matters to God and therefore should matter to us. Ravi Zacharias puts it like this. I think what Jesus says here is remarkable. The value given to you is intrinsic not extrinsic. That's what I was trying to explain. The value given to you doesn't depend on your income, your employment status, your popularity, your athletic build, your lack of, your fitness levels. None of that determines your value. It's intrinsic. He goes on to say, Ravi, that every human life is a life of worth and life of value. The imperative of love and compassion, he says, from Christ to the marginalizing society came as a natural working of these two precepts, that every human being is made in the image of God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What he's saying is if you truly believe that every human being is made in the image of God, if you truly believe the highest law in Christianity is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then it compels you, it places upon us an imperative of love and compassion to the marginalized, to the voiceless, to that little kid on the rubbish dump. He has no less value than I or the Prime Minister or the President of the United States of America. They both have equal value. That little kid on the rubbish dump raking for his dinner is of equal value because it's intrinsic, it's placed, it's birthed within them. And the potential for that little kid, if someone would see it and someone give it opportunity, he has got potential to be a DNA research scientist. Uh, uh, he's got potential to be a top sports athlete if we were to see and to be the voice to the voiceless. Because one of the dangers of atheism that views human beings as accidental byproducts of nature, it could lead us to depreciating the value of human life, something that we must never do. Tending to see humans as merely a higher form of animal and therefore beginning to treat them as such. And that has happened historically. You know the examples. Let me ask you a question. Are Christians good for society? Or are Christians bad for society? 
Sometimes Christians give themselves a bad name, but we need to look at the evidence. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think said this? It's been our misfortune to have the wrong religion. Why didn't we have the religion of the Japanese who regards sacrifice for the fatherland as the highest good? The Mohammedan religion too would have been much more compatible to us than Christianity. Why did it have to be Christianity with our meekness and, and flabbiness? You know, one of the power of Christianity is its meekness. Jesus said that, didn't he, in the Beatitudes. And it's through meekness and gentleness and humility and the small day-to-day actions of love that are transforming the world. That's what transforms the world. It's not power, political power and might. It doesn't change the world of the kid on the rubbish dump. You know who said that? This man, Adolf. Hitler. So has Christianity been bad for society? Has it been so repressive, hindering social progress and reform? Because we should be good for society based on our understanding of the Imago Dei. But have Christians been good for society historically? As I said, one shared value that all people of all religions and no religion share is this. We want to make the world a better place. But many of the great advances that have taken place in our world actually have come from people who were Christian and followers of a man called Jesus Christ. The progress in our world in the last 200 years is mind-blowing. Um, and I want to ask you a question. Have Christians got anything to do with this progress that you're about to see? So, here we go. First, an axis for health, life expectancy from 25 years to 75 years. And down here, an axis for wealth, income per person, 400, 4,000, and $40,000. So down here is poor and sick, and up here is rich and healthy. Now, I'm going to show you the world 200 years ago in 1810. Here come all the countries. Europe brown, Asia red, Middle East green, Africa south of Sahara blue, and the Americas yellow. And the size of the country bubble showed the size of the population. And in 1810, it was pretty crowded down there, wasn't it? All countries were sick and poor. Life expectancy were below 40 in all countries. And only the UK and the Netherlands were slightly better off, but not much. And now, why start the world? The Industrial Revolution makes countries in Europe and elsewhere move away from the rest. But the colonized countries in Asia and Africa, they are stuck down there. And eventually, the Western countries get healthier and healthier. And now, we slow down to show the impact of the First World War and the Spanish flu epidemic. What a catastrophe! And now I speed up through the 1920s and the 1930s. And in spite of the Great Depression, Western countries forge on towards greater wealth and health. Japan and some others try to follow, but most countries stay down here. Now, after the tragedies of the Second World War, we stop a bit to look at the world in 1948. 1948 was a great year. The war was over, Sweden topped the medal table at the Winter Olympics, and I was born. But the differences between the countries of the world was wider than ever. United States was in the front, Japan was catching up, Brazil was way behind, Iran was getting a little richer from oil, but still had short lives. 
and the Asian giants, China, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Indonesia, they were still poor and sick down here. But look what is about to happen. Here we go again. In my lifetime, former colonies gained independence and then finally they started to get healthier and healthier and healthier. And in the 1970s, then countries in Asia and Latin America started to catch up with the Western countries. They became the emerging economies. Some in Africa follows. Some Africans were stuck in civil war and others hit by HIV. And now we can see the world today in the most up-to-date statistics. Most people today live in the middle, but there are huge differences at the same time between the best of countries and the worst of countries. And there are also huge inequalities within countries. These bubbles show country averages, but I can split them. Take China, I can split it into provinces. There goes Shanghai. It has the same wealth and health as Italy today. And there is the poor inland province Guizhou. It is like Pakistan. And if I split it further, the rural parts are like Ghana in Africa. And yet, despite the enormous disparities today, we have seen 200 years of remarkable progress. That huge historical gap between the West and the rest is now closing. We have become an entirely new converging world. And I see a clear trend into the future with aid, trade, green technology and peace it's fully possible that everyone can make it to the healthy, wealthy corner. I love, uh, love that guy and uh, his video and I'm enjoying his book. But um, I want to say, have any of these advances got anything to do with Christianity? Have Christians been involved in any of the advances that we've been seeing? Well, did you know that in the US, for example, the end of open legalized slavery called the abolition, nearly every single one of the abolish leaders, abolitionist leaders, was a follower of a man called Jesus Christ and his teaching. And they were writing their arguments to end slavery based on the New Testament. And they were saying this, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to end slavery. There's the, there is the Imago Dei, love your neighbor as yourself, they're compelled to act in love and compassion to the marginalized in society. In the founding charter of the American Anti-Slavery Association, there's eight scripture references right there at the top. Their Christian faith in the Bible motivated them to give their lives to transform society, to make the world a better place and to end slavery. Now that is why William Wilberforce dedicated his whole life to ending slavery in the House of Commons, 20 years to bring an end to the, um, the market of slaves. 20 years he fought to see that victory. Another 20 years he fought to see emancipation and the freedom of the slaves. But, and he, he suffered from terrible ulcerative colitis himself. It wasn't diagnosed or understood in that day. They didn't have the powerful anti-inflammatory medicines we have today. So he lived in agony, nearly died quite a few times from ulcerative colitis, and they only had morphine to treat it with. Yet, despite his suffering, despite his weakness, despite all of that, um, he was uh, compelled to give his life to end slavery. He was a Yorkshire lad, and over 1,700 years after a man called Jesus Christ, and he would come to faith in this man 
and come to follow his teachings 1,700 years after his death. It would transform his life, his priorities, his financial priorities, and how he spent his time. Wilberforce was simply the greatest social reformer in the history of the world, a Yorkshire lad. The world he was born into in 1759 and the world he departed in 1833 were as different as lead and gold. This is from a book called Amazing Grace by Metaxas about Wilberforce. It says, his new perspective, what new perspective? His new perspective when he came to follow this man called Jesus, who he believed um, to, and his teaching in the Bible, it gave him a new perspective of the purpose, the vacation of his life, his purpose of how he should spend his time and how he should spend his money. It said, his new perspective made him about as zealous to improve the social conditions of the world around him as anyone who ever lived. As we shall see in Wilberforce's day, it was devout Christians, almost exclusively, who were concerned with helping the poor, bringing them education, and acting as their advocates, who labored to end the slave trade among many, many other evils and injustices in the UK. But so successful would Wilberforce and these other Christians be at bringing concern for the poor and a social conscience into the society at large that by the next century, during the Victorian era, this attitude would become culturally mainstream. That's from Amazing Grace by Metaxas. Now, did you know that people who created the university system as we know it today were Christian? From this came modern medicine, and out of that came the scientific revolution. And these people, like those who were motivated to end the slave trade, and like those who were motivated to end racial discrimination, such as Martin Luther King Jr., they were Christian. And they followed the teaching of this same man called Jesus Christ. And did you know that until 200 years ago, as we saw, the average life expectancy was 45 years old, just 200 years ago. If you think about the history of the world, that's not that long. Until 200 years ago, less than 10% of the global population could read. These things were t we take for granted just now, but the university, which brought about all our modern conveniences, our modern conveniences through the Industrial Revolution, the scientific revolution that brought this, uh, even for example, being able to harness electricity. If you were to remove all of these things, we'd be living back in the dark ages. But what was the beliefs, the religion of these people behind these improvements of our society and world? It was Christian. And not just a nominal Christianity because it was popular and cultural, they genuinely believed, and there's evidence from their writing that they genuinely believed and followed this man called Jesus Christ. They believed in the Imago Dei, that every person is made in the image of God, and they believed that we're called to love our neighbor as himself. So this led them to be merciful. So whether it's the writings of Isaac Newton and Blaise Pascal on the, on the scientific revolution, Frederick Douglass and John Rankin and Elizabeth Elijah Lovejoy and ending slavery. John Harvard in creating the modern University of Oxford and Cambridge. If you go back a thousand years, every single one of them was brought about by devout followers of Jesus Christ. And we can't underestimate how each one of these things has significantly contributed to that social progress that we have seen over the past 10 years. 
Did you know that the top 10 hospitals in the world today, nine out of 10 were founded by Christians? Almost all of them started as Christian almshouses or charity houses. One was founded by a Jewish group, but their doctors were trained at Christian universities. The 10 best universities in the US today, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, they're all well known. They were all started by Yes, you guessed it, Christians. Eight of the 10 have overtly Christian charters. Two of 10, MIT and Stanford, they didn't write it in their charter, but their founders, yes, you guessed it, were Christian. My question, is Christianity oppressive to society or has it shaped and reformed society that we live in today? Robert Boyle, who created Boyle's Law and Modern Chemistry, he actually wrote a book called The Christian Virtuoso, which you can read today. And in The Christian Virtuoso, he argues that a view of God as the creator of the cosmos enables you to be the best at science. It's not just history. There's a guy today called Dr. Francis Collins. He's a medical doctor who has a PhD, and he's the director of the National Institute of Health. He's one of the world's leading researchers in essentially decoding the human genome and DNA. And he became a, a believer in God out of what? Studying DNA. And uh, I've, I've, I've really looked into the, the coding and the sequencing of DNA, and it's absolutely phenomenal. And the chances of it all coming together to form the first protein accidentally would require such a long period of time to make it almost impossible for it to happen by chance. And there's a good book I can direct you to if you're interested in, in, in reading about that further. But even Albert Einstein, said, first, God gave us Newton's laws of motion. The rest of his quote basically says, modern science is the result of that. But all these founders of the scientific re revolution had gone to colleges like Oxford, Cambridge, which had been founded by Christians. So the scientific revolution, if you like, is a tree that grew from the soil of a Christian world. There was a guy called John Dickerson, and he wrote a book called Jesus Skeptic. Many people were skeptical, skeptical, and rightly so, about Christianity and about Christians and worry about it being oppressive and dangerous, and uh, we'd be much better off without it, as did Adolf Hitler believe, and others have believed also. And what he did, this is a quote from his book, he says, I looked at the World Health Organization's ranking of the 10 best nations in the world for women's rights and the 10 worst nations. And then I correlated those with the Pew Research findings of what's the percentage of Christians in these nations. And what I found is that the 10 best nations for women's rights in the world today are 75% Christian in their population, according to the Pew Research Center. The 10 worst are all less than 10% Christian. Is Christianity actually so oppressive in our world? So where Christianity goes, women have better education, more equal pay, they're allowed to vote and drive cars, things not allowed to do in those 10 lower nations. That's his books, Jesus Skeptic. And he says, so that's why I wrote this book. And frankly, the reality that the findings I gathered 
about, and he firmly believes, Christianity being the greatest movement for social good in human history. That's what he believes. Christianity, the greatest movement, and that's not disregard that non-Christians have not contributed. Of course they have. But Christians is simply saying Christians have not oppressed. Christians have not hindered. Christians have not got in the way of social progress. They've been at the very foundational uh, um, and been at the, the pioneering head of all different sorts of progress. He says that's a huge claim. But in his book, I back it up by dozens of images and primary evidence artifacts in his book called Jesus Skeptic. He says, I read a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by a guy named Josh McDowell. He said, that convinced me that at least Jesus was a historic figure. So he came to actually believe what everybody now believes in the, educated, edu, edu, uh, in the realms of education. No one denies that Jesus Christ, no one denies that Jesus Christ was a historical figure. They don't deny the facts that he was a historical figure. He did live, he did give teaching, he did die upon a Roman cross. He was put in a tomb um, by Joseph of Arimathea and that tomb was empty. These are all the facts that are well accepted, okay? The interpretation of, is Jesus the Son of God, is what people need to make up their mind on. But he was convinced, first and foremost, that yeah, okay, he was a historic figure, and then that the gospel writings are indicative of his life and teaching. So then I started to read those words, and that's what we would encourage all of you to do. Let's bring this to a close, and we can have the band up. So as Christians, we're called to love and care for people and seek to aim and aim to improve the world in which we live in. That looks different for different people. For some, it's the world of politics. Others, it's science or sport, media or business. But the goal is the same, to improve our world, to love people, to make the world a better place. It includes the small everyday things. The people who change world are not necessarily those with the highest power on the highest levels. Jesus said, it's the meek. It's the peacemakers, those who hunger and thirst for justice. It's like the person in this church who volunteers for women's aids and goes to meet a woman and takes her out and walks her around the town and loves her. That's what it's about. It's about compassion. It's about love. It's about knowing there's a child in this town that's going to wake up on their birthday and not have any birthday presents and saying, you know what, I've got a garage full of presents. I've got a shed full of presents. I could deliver them to that house and make it the most beautiful birthday for that little child. It's as simple as that. It doesn't, you know, maybe it's for you, it's science. Maybe you can, you know, sometimes examples like Wilberforce and that, you're like, wow, I could never do things like that. No. Be you. You were created in God's image. You're unique. He's got unique contribution for you to make. Be fully you. And lastly, begin with prayer. Pray for five people, as Peter was saying. Listen. Listen to what people have to say. The best communicators are the best listeners. Some people are fantastic speakers, and they think themselves they're a good communicator. <laughs> <laughs> you, ever, you ever been there? And you're like, you're absolutely shattered after five minutes. You're like, I need home for a sleep. <laughs> no, none of you have ever been there. None of you have ever been there. You know, listen, listening. In order to listen, you actually have to ask some good questions. You know, good communicators 
are the best people at asking open questions and they're the best listeners. The next time you have a conversation, ask yourself, how many open questions did I just ask that person? If it's been less than two, then you've probably spoken about yourself way much more than you really should have. <laughs> yeah? We need to, and so, listen, some, people, you're, some of you are really good at that and some of you have got lots of room for growth. You're not a failure, you're just, well, there's room for growth, that's great. You've got a lot of room to grow in listening. Uh, eat with people, as Jesus did. Serve people, love them, and share your story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you, Jesus, for giving your life. We thank you that we get to follow you. We thank you that each person here today is made in your image, in your likeness, that each person is highly significant. There are no accidents in this room today, maybe humanly speaking, but not from a divine perspective, because every life is woven together in the mother's womb by your hand. We thank you, God, you put us on this earth to be your representatives. That means we're called to show compassion because you're a compassionate God. It means we're called to show love because you are the God of love. It means we're called to listen because you're a God who loves to listen. And it means we're called to show interest in others because you are interested in others. Lord, would you commission us afresh with your divine commission to be a blessing, to love others. For those who do not know you today, Lord, who couldn't describe themselves as a Christian, maybe agnostic, maybe don't know, maybe unsure, Lord, today, may some of them make the decision today, you know what, like Wilberforce, I want a new perspective. I'm ready to give this Jesus man a go to read his words and to start following him. For some need to hear more on this matter, and we pray that you would stir them to seek out to find more. And some would say, no, that's not for me. May your grace be upon them. May your love follow them. If you're ready, just, you can just say, Jesus, today I need you. I choose to put my trust in you. I choose to follow you today. I thank you for your death upon the cross. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to help me. I've tried it my own way and I seem to be getting more anxious, more troubled. I ask you to come into my life. Forgive me, give me a new start in Jesus' name. If you said that quietly, pick up a wee gold bag on the way out, tell somebody who brought you, and um, start reading the words of Jesus for yourself. May it just change your life, that of your family, and that of your destiny. We thank you. Let's stand and let's just close in some worship. Thank you.